Okay, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Howard McLeod to Oncopharm. He is a uh, pharmacist. Uh, I'll run through um, from drhowardmcleod.com. Uh, uh, bachelor's from University of Washington School of Pharmacy, uh, PharmD at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and Sciences. Uh, then a postdoc fellowship at St. Jude's and has been faculty at uh, in Scotland, it looks like, and here in the United States. And um, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Howard McLeod, can you tell us your, your current role and what you're doing, uh, what you've been doing there? Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on here. And little did I know when I went to pharmacy school, uh, the, the, the road that, that it would take. Um, it's been a, a, a fun time. It continues to be a, a lot of fun. The PharmD really can take you a lot of places. Um, currently, I'm the the uh, the medical director for precision medicine for something called the Geriatric Oncology Consortium, which is a multi-center uh, clinical trial network and does a lot of work with the FDA on uh, package inserts and, and such. I'm also a professor at the University of South Florida at the Teenager uh, College of, of Pharmacy um, that's that's here in uh, in Tampa. Okay, well that's interesting. Well, well, um, you know, I've noticed as new drugs are approved, the language in the PI ha has changed recently, and there is, you know, sometimes some explicit dosing information uh, as far as genomics go, which we'll probably touch back on. Um, you've done a lot in your career just from looking at, you know, your, your bio on your website, and you're the only guest I know of that has their own uh, Wikipedia page. So you, you're a fellow of ASCO, a fellow of ACCP, and uh, like you said, you've done some work with FDA. But the most notable thing, I don't know if this is true, because when I listen to podcasts and, and the, the host uh, talks to the guests, they say, we read this on your Wikipedia, and sometimes it's not true. Uh, Wikipedia says you, uh, in high school, were in a band called The Potentials <laughs> with the lyrics music for their four-song EP. Is that true? It, it is true, but I'm not sure how who put that on Wikipedia. <laughs> well, it's funny. They have a reference, and it's like some, it's, a, it's a recording of some talk that you gave. Um, and so I searched, yeah, my own fault then. <laughs> I searched the potentials on Spotify and there is a band on Spotify called the potentials with four yeah. songs. Is this, your... no, I think, I think that's a different, um, I okay. think that's, I think there's a few bands that over the years that were called the potentials. Okay. The, the, um, it's, I don't know how that came up, but they're, um, the, the songs that from ours are being remixed and they came out as a five song EP back, uh, back in the, in the um, early eighties and okay. then are being remixed Our the drummer for the band I was in um, ended up becoming a, a rock and roll hall of famer. <laughs> and he was the uh, Pearl jams uh, drummer uh, for the, for the first album, uh, Dave Cruz was his name. And then it was in a band called Candlebox, um, and uh, still is a active drummer. And so, um, I guess that sparked some new interest in getting his, uh, his, his stuff out there. So they are remixing it. So the, our stuff, our, our version of the potentials may see the light of day at some point, but oh. I'm not sure if I am looking forward to that or not. Wow. Okay. Well, now I just want to talk about uh, yeah. <laughs> Seattle area grunge music and pre-grunge and not talk about genomics, but let's talk about genomics. Cause I don't think people are here to listen to uh, our musical tastes. Um, so let's just briefly do a little genomics 101. So what do we need to maybe recall from our college, you know, biology uh, to talk about genomics? One thing that comes to mind, you know, is the difference between somatic and germline mutation. So just tell us the differences there. What do we need to know about that? Yeah, when I'm talking to, to pharmacists or really any clinicians, 
one of the fears they have is that they have to learn about genomics. And I think that's held the field back a bit. You, you don't. You, you may or may not know how Billy Rubin was measured, but you know what to do with it. And I look at genomics the, the same way. You can go as deep as you want into the technology behind it and the principles. But the way I look at it is a patient has many different genomes that are relevant to their care. There's viral genomes, multiple different viruses, bacterial yeast, et cetera. The tumor itself is, is a renegade of the, the host genome. Um, and so the somatic is, is the, uh, the tumor's genome in the, in the context we're talking about. Um, and, and then the, the germ line, as it's called, is the, the DNA that mom and dad uh, put together for you. Um, and so looking at the, the normal you know, germline DNA, you've got relevance for all tissues. And so I look at that as toxicity relevant. Um, and then the tumor itself has unique features that can be exploited um, therapeutically. So uh, I really look at it as, as um, we're thinking about the genomes relevant to the patient and then how we can exploit those for better care. And um, the reason I belabor the point is for a long time, there was the germline, more epidemiology type folks, and there was the somatic tumor biology folks, and they never talked to each other. And there was almost a religious divide. You know, you don't want your, your daughter, if you're a germline person, you don't want your daughter marrying a you know, somatic person or whatever. Um, and um, rather, but if you're trying to help a patient, you need to care about them all. And so really focusing in on what are the tools that can help me better care for my patient. And if they happen to be DNA from a tumor or from a virus or from the, the normal white cells, um, fantastic. And then, you know, go from there. Yeah, that, you know, that's, that's interesting, the, the kind of that religious divide there, because when I'm listening to, to you talk about that as, as a pharmacist, of course, you have to to think about them all, you know, I think about if you have a germline mutation in how you metabolize a drug, that's going to affect the pharmacokinetics. But if you have a, you know, somatic mutation, a tumor that could affect the pharmacodynamics of what the drug does. And it'd be, it would be crazy, you know, to have a pharmacokinetics course that doesn't talk about pharmacodynamics and vice versa. So of course they have to, they have to go together. Okay. Some other stuff, some genomics 201. So this is something, um, you know, that has been, uh, I guess in the lexicon, at least for maybe a decade, but NGS, tell us what NGS is, what that stands for and how that's, that's maybe an advancement for the field. Yeah. So it, it's, um, stands for next generation sequencing. It's kind of an unfortunate name in that there's always going to be a next generation of whatever we do. <laughs> so, so it, it's, we're on version, you know, version 20 by now, but, um, uh, there was a, a point in time when uh, there, uh, a change from sequencing small bits of DNA to a shotgun approach of looking at bits of the entire genome um, occurred. And so the technology where you didn't just look at a focused region, but rather looked across the whole genome, that was the, the next generation that was, that was made. And so we now have um, the ability to do that with a, a chip array, for example, will allow you, allow you to look at just very focused parts of the genome or the, the uh, most of the sequencing done these days is so-called next generation sequencing allows you to look at really any gene um, and then you filter it down to what, uh, what you're really interested in. And so next, you know, when, when NGS is used, really it's talking about broader sequencing um, and um, allowing more, more focus uh, to then come informatically. Um, there, there still are ways, like often we'll just look at 600 genes on a, on a, on a tumor panel, for example. It's using next generation sequencing 
that technology could be used to look at the whole genome, uh, but we're just focusing it down because it would make our head explode if we looked at the whole genome. Um, but yeah, it's, it's um, an advance that allows us to look broader and deeper than we ever have before. Yeah, so the way that, that I try to have explained this to students, so tell me if this analogy holds up uh, for you, is, is Sanger sequencing, the old version of sequencing DNA, would kind of be like by hand, one person copying an entire textbook. And NGS is like, you get hundreds of people just to copy an individual page. And everyone's doing it at the same time. So you're able to do it a lot faster. Is that is that kind of a fair yeah, way to think about well, it? No, I, I love that analogy. And I would add to it, that you can also look at how how many copies of the book were made um, with the you know with with uh, Sanger sequencing, there was only one copy. You you couldn't really say. But if if there was something that had uh, where there was a difference in the it wasn't just the typical um, frequencies proportions, one one couldn't really tell that accurately with Sanger. Uh, with next generation sequencing, you can not only tell um, you can not only make a lot of books, but you can say all right how many how many copies of those books are there? Um, and that and that allows us, especially in the oncology area, to be able to, to look at things like copy number, of course, deletions, uh, but but also fusions and, and other uh, g- uh, aspects of the genome that we couldn't see with Sanger. Okay. So, so how would you define precision medicine? And I know that that's kind of your, you know, your, your thing as a medical director for a precision medicine program. So what would be you know, your, your one line definition of this, or, or how, if, if somebody, you know, you're at an airport, you meet someone, you talk to them, like, what do you do? And you say, I'm in precision medicine. They're like, what is that? What would your answer be? Well, the way I describe it may not be the way others in precision medicine describe it. My goal is to be more precise about our choices of medicine. And so precision medicine, just a few extra words laid in there, that really can also be called personalized medicine or individualized therapy or um, stratified medicine in the UK, they like to use that term. But right now we are good and can we be great is, is really the, uh, uh, the goal. And so to me, precision medicine is, is an aspirational term where we would like to be more precise. Okay. Um, now, where does this fall? I'll, I'll say this question for later. So give me some examples with regards to drug dosing of how precision medicine can be used. So I'm thinking of like things like DPD deficiency and Cape Cytobine or 5-FU. What are some of the most common examples of that? Well, in, in um, childhood malignancies, the, the TPMT um, example for, for dosing purines is, uh, is there. Uh, that one also translates outside of oncology and, and is very heavily used in gastroenterology and rheumatology, dermatology. Um, and so that's an area where one could be on uh, around uh, 60% of the normal dose uh, if they're heterozygote, or if you're a uh, homozygous variant, um, could be down to a, a just licking the tablet every once in a while, you know, basically a, a very small fraction of the, of the drug um, on, the, on that side. Um, you mentioned the DPYD example. That's another one where, where uh, uh, dose reductions um, can, be done, can be shown to, to, to be effective. Um, there's some recent data that, that have come out um, around UGT1A1 um, and more and more evidence that you can use that in the context of Renner TKN <laughs> okay. um, that, um, th- that makes it so that, that not only can, can you be, make it safer, but also maintain some of the efficacy. Yeah, and I think so, um, 
yeah. Well, I was gonna say that's, that's a great example. And to go back to to TPMT and and six more capture purine. I mean, I remember learning about that in school, TPMT. And then a couple of years later, at Hopa, I learned that there's there's another enzyme, NUD T15, that they also test for now in kids. And yep. you know, you just uh, mentioned the, the UGT one A one. So there is there's a paper from some Dutch researchers that you are, I think, the only American author on that's. <laughs> um, a prospective kind of cost analysis in the Netherlands of doing uh, the, and the feasibility of doing upfront UGT 1A1 testing. And I knew about the star 28 allele, but this paper talked about a star 93 that I had not heard of. And I'm not a genomics expert, but I, I you know, I, I try to stay current on stuff and that's not something I'd ever heard of. So, you know, my, 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 I guess a bigger picture question is, and think of this maybe in the cons in the, um, as we learn about COVID, right? And we learn something new about COVID and we tend to think it, it's black or white, it's good or bad, you get it or you can't. Yeah. And really it's when you first learn about something, there's a lot of variability in how, in how confident you are about that. And you know, the more that you know, and the more we're able to identify, not just how one enzyme, but probably how multiple enzymes and their proteins interplay with this, we're gonna continue to get more and more uh, precise and accurate as we go forward. So, you know, we're, cause I, I can see people arguing about this saying this precision medicine is really expensive probably. And, you know, for some of these early, you know, uh, enzymes we identify are, are, are mutations. How confident are we that that's going to hold true for every patient? There's probably even still some interpatient variability here for just because there are other enzymes that we have yet to identify that play yeah. a role in, yeah. in drug dosing or, or drug effects. Well, and, and it's a little bit of you know what you know, but you don't know what you don't know. So mm -hmm. you, you've got um, variants where it's now pretty clear from laboratory studies, from clinical studies, from interventions uh, that uh, acting on those variants does result in safer medicines with equal efficacy or some feature like that that is, is a goal. But each of us has a chance of having some unique variant that's unique to our family or even unique to our person because there, there are de novo variants that are that, that occur and so one one um, goes forward knowing some things but not everything um, as we go and you know even if we've had our, our whole genome sequenced there is so much of of the um, the content there we just don't know what it means yet and so I could have a variant that I've carried my whole life, but it might just be tomorrow that we find out, oh, that actually has something of relevance. If only we knew before that, now we can act on it um, accordingly. So I look at it as, as very much uh, a language in evolution. You know, we, we, start, we see um, elements of, of uh, the language, but we don't know where what's gonna be revealed. You know, if we think back, I don't know about in your case, but in my case, you think back, there are, there are terms in the English language that were very commonly used when I was a child that are not used now at all. Um, certainly lots of different terms that, that have come into the language over time. Very similar with the genome. Um, you, you think, well, English, you know, how could there be new terms? How come well, there are, there are new variations found in the genome. There are, are words that had a different meaning back then that it means, means something different now. Um, the same thing occurs with, with the genome. It may have meant something benign back then. Uh, back when we first uh, sequenced it, but now means something pat you know, pathogenic, you know? So um, that's sort of uh, uh, how I view the genome. And it's hard because 
as humans, we want life to be simple. We want to have a simple expression. We want one variant in one gene to mean everything for one drug. You know, and that's that's just not how the biology works. <laughs> and then, yeah. and you know, the the quicker we embrace that we're in a very dynamic field, and and I don't mean dynamic as exciting, although it is that, but dynamic as in changing. And you know, there's a phenotype among pharmacists in particular where we really want the rules to be there in place. And, and yes, you know, we as, do. as a profession, it's a it's a group of people that, for the most part, you know, want to have a lane and want to stay in it. You know, um, and um, that's just not the way it is. And really, a lot of the change that I've seen in the field in terms of the role of the pharmacist or the role of of clinical pharmacologists, if they're not pharmacists, um, has been not because these are people who want to, to necessarily make these changes, but no one else is going to do it. Um, and I think precision medicine in general, what I'm finding is it's not so much that oncologists are looking for pharmacists to step up. They're looking for someone to step up because they can't do it. And pharmacists are best placed to do it because they understand drugs, understand how variables can influence drugs like renal function or, or drug interactions or whatever. Um, and stepping in there. And so I know that's a long way from our, our, our uh, dis discussion point where it originated, but this idea that the genome is a, a flowing river to, that we have to participate in um, is, is really, you know, the quicker we can get our head around that and accept it, the more effective we can be for our patients because did, things change, literally can change in a day. Yeah, I like that flowing river. We'll come back to that uh, in regards to uh, tumor heterogeneity, probably a little bit in a little bit. So a specific question here. So with regards to DPD testing and UGT1A1 testing, what will it take? Because I, I, I read somewhere that DPD testing is, is standard in many places in Europe, and it's not yet standard in the US. Yeah, I think yeah. we're pretty confident in the test, the reliability of the test in, in detecting DPD deficiencies in a lot of different variants and alleles and good guidance on how to change dosing. Um, but it's not yet standard. No organization I know of has said we should test everyone up front for it. And if you've seen someone die from DPD deficiency, yeah. which I have, it seems yes. kind of crazy that we don't do this. So, um, you know, you could say, well, we're not there yet, which is okay. But my question to you is what is the, that bar you know, is it a randomized controlled trial? What is the, what is it that will get people to say we're there, we should do this uh, for everybody up front? So, and, and we're in very much that, that part of the S-shaped curve that is starting to fly up, um, not only because of the outside pressures, because we're one of the few, you know, Western countries that doesn't routinely uh, do DPYD testing. I mean, even Canada um, has, I have uh, a Canadian father, and, and so I always like to tease my Canadian cousins of, of trailing behind us, even Canada is implementing faster than we are for, for DPYD. And so it's almost like there's a psychological barrier there that has kept us back. Um, what we're, one thing we're seeing now is the uh, willingness of insurance companies to pay for panel testing that includes DPYD is, is growing. I'm seeing a lot more coverage even over the last few months um, compared to before. And so the economic barrier that isn't really an issue in most countries um, it is an issue in the U.S., and so that's that's part of it. We don't want to order a test for a patient, and then um, they're landed with a big bill, and then they complain to you about this big bill. Um, but the, so that's that's part of it. I think from a data standpoint, there's a there's a lot of data out there. Um, the Dutch, in, in particular, have done a number of intervention studies, economic studies, etc. 
right right now we're seeing health centers decide to do it. So they're not waiting for NCCN. They're not waiting for ASCO. They're not waiting for any other uh, other body. They're deciding, you know what, we're going to do this. And these are large health systems, you know, Atrium Health and, uh, for, you know, for example, example, Jay Patel and the folks down there. Um, and if you haven't had Jay Patel on as a guest, you really, really should. Phen- phenomenal uh, uh, guy, built a great program down there in, in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. But, um, you know, Jay decides, you know what, it's silly that we're not doing this. Um, let's let's start it. And so they 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 decide as an institution they're going to do it. They routinely start using it in GI cancer, and then now are expanding it out to breast and other areas where fluoroprimidines uh, could have a role. Um, as they do more panel testing for pain and for for um, depression and and uh, you know clotting, etc., it's on there. And so they're getting DPYD um, in an amortized way because you can you can pay for the panel a number of different ways. You know, you might choose to pay for it with your need for antidepressant dosing, um, but you end up getting DPYD as part of that, you know? So the, the, um, the way it's happening in the U S and the reasons it's happening are not what you'd expect. Um, it's not the new England journal um, paper uh, that is, is, is changing it. It's the realization that there are some straightforward ways of getting that information almost for free because you're using a different reason to order the test. Um, and so it's, it's, it's been really fascinating. It's, it's more grassroots than, than I expected. I, I, you may or may not know this, but uh, Frank Gonzalez from the NCI and myself um, were the ones who found the DPYD star 2A uh, variant. Um, in, it was from a, a patient that nearly died in, in Glasgow, um, Scotland, that we went and, and, and studied his, his extended family and, and then uh, his DNA was used to, to find that variant. Um, and that was back in 1994. Um, the publications came out a few years later than that, but you know, it's been a long time that we've known these variants. And then you know, as the data builds up, you know, gradually uh, that tipping point has reached for each country. And, and it's now starting to happen in the US, but your, your comment about what will it take is, is a great one because the usual data you know what has changed our practice in so many other areas um, is not is not there. I mean, we look at drug interactions for tamoxifen based on some retrospective analyses, and yet, you know, we have prospective data around some of these genomic areas uh, that that we um, we think need uh, repeating. You know, <laughs> so yeah. it's a it's a funny field. Yeah, I, I think probably the the answer is um, just willingness to pay. And that is that that barrier is becoming lower as 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 the technology gets better. Just like you know, I, I at the start of the pandemic, we bought a smart TV to keep the kids occupied uh, upstairs right. while we were working. I was like, the last time I bought a TV, it was fifteen hundred dollars, and this was three hundred. Um, so I imagine NGS panels follow a similar path as the technology yeah, develops sure. and it ramps up, that the cost goes down, and that makes the willingness to pay barrier easier to overcome for insurance companies, or even sometimes. You know, I've heard of individual centers say, we're just going to eat the cost because if we can prevent one admission to DPD deficiency, it pays for itself potentially for a year, things like that. Yep. Um, All right. So let's, let's, we'll, we'll talk about genomics um, in in the, in the cancer milieu in the tumors in a second, but I know that you have uh, some expertise in implementation science. So let's say, you know, you're, uh, you're on your pedestal saying pharmacists need to step up or can step up and implement some of these 
this precision medicine. So what would your advice be to, to someone like me, who's at say kind of a, a hybrid, you know, maybe a community cancer center, they want to start this and just start with just drug dosing first, you know, so doing these sort of panels of, um, you know, DPD, UD 2D6, which could help for depression, for tamoxifen, maybe for, uh, you know, even on Dancitron, you know, what's the starting point as far as implementing that? Yeah. So I, I like to look at the culture and the pain points. So if, um, if you look at the culture of where you practice, you know, where, where are you and your colleagues seen to operate? Uh, you know, what, what is the area that it's just a given that that's, that you, you guys own that area. Um, and then try to start there. You know, there are some places where to supportive care medicine is practiced by pharmacy, you know, than, and others, other places where um, the, the role is, is different than that. It's more of a, a drug safety type of role or et cetera, et cetera. Um, And that, that allows you to ease into the culture because this, this, um, you know, this revolution versus evolution thing, revolution, basically, even if it's coming top down from the CEO, does it doesn't sustain whereas if you go and look say, all right here's where i am now uh, let's get started and then from a pain point standpoint i look at things like what is it that an oncologist does that they don't really want to do now no medical oncologist went through all the trainings she went through in order to be really good at prescribing antidepressants they they may think that they did it to be good at prescribing pain control but the antidepressants to me are a great space because they have to think about them in, in about a third of their patients. They, um, they don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to remember what to prescribe. They, they just, it's just a pain in the rear for, for most of them. And so anybody that could, could help, um, you can come in and say, Oh, don't worry about it. Let's do this test. And then we'll pick one that's more likely to work uh, or, or likely to be safer or whatever. The, the less they have to think about that, the, the better. Now, for your oncologist, it might be something different, but depression, the choice of antidepressants is one of those areas that has really been a, a good one for pharmacogenomics because oncologists just don't want to be bothered with it. It's just not their comfort zone. Um, now, you get in there and try to use EGT1A1 for renotecan, start that one. Unless, unless there's a real groundswell of desire, um, that will be a tough fight because there's always the, well, we lose efficacy argument that, that needs to be worked through. And so I encourage people to start with a focused area where there's no competition, as in no one's going to fight you to, to um, not uh, uh, optimize antidepressants. Um, and then once you've got that rolling, you then can naturally expand out because, oh, on the panel we use, it also has this antiplatelet information. And this uh, information for antiemetics and for pain control. And, oh, here's a, here's a patient where we may want to go straight to hydrocodone or, or uh, hydromorphone, rather, um, or something that we normally would not do. You know, and the, the, the idea that you kind of ease in um, and then, you know, that trickle of water over time becomes the Grand Canyon in terms of the ability to really, um, you know, impact the, the practice. And, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember when... Um, I, I was trained at places that put um, gentamicin per pharmacy. Mm -hmm. That was their dosing and schedule recommendation. Sure, yeah. per pharmacy <laughs> and then pharmacy went up and decided which dose, which schedule. And really we're heading that way with, with um, a lot of supportive care where the, the pharmacogenomics component and some of the other elements really allow an impact to happen. And then that then 
uh, allows you to, to start saying, well, you know, what about some of these other areas and, and try to optimize things there? Yeah. So, you know, your, your comment there about, about starting small and, and, and can, can get bigger. I, I guess I have a, some specific questions about, you know, if you want to order a test, say you want to do DPD or want to do, you know, UGT 1A1, it, it's how, what, what advice would you give for selecting what sort of panel, what sort of test to use? I'll give you a, an example that I had a couple of years ago. One of the physicians I work with had a patient who had a very unstable labile INR. And this oncologist had sent for, um, cause we do a lot of benign and or non-malignant hematology as well. Right. And, right. um, as kind of a hybrid community academic practice, and it already sent for a, a SIP 2C9 polymorphism test, which is the, the main metabolic route for the S the super strong and antimer warfarin came back deficient. Okay. But there's other enzymes involved in the warfarin metabolism, as well as vitamin K epoxide reductase, the target of warfarin. So I said, well, I know that there is this one ohm, which is a Mayo offshoot that does a, a panel of different things. It does DPD, it does UT1A1, it does several different things, okay? It's like 30 or 40 genes. I was like, well, this has all the warfarin ones, okay? And we sent that. And we got not we got um, some other mutations, but we got a different CYP2C9 mutation from that test from a different test. And I, I was like, I know that it's not normal, but I don't yeah. know... I don't know what to do with this. They're discordant results for this. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on here. Um, so there, there are kind of two questions there. One is, you know, and I've heard this from other clinicians is, is sometimes they send, you know, sometimes there'll be um, kind of like too many cooks in the kitchen and the radiation oncologist sends something and the medical oncologist sends something and you get two different, you get two different results from the same genome using different tests. So that's one question. And the other question, you know, if you just want to send one, it seems like the cost is quite a bit for one gene. Whereas if you send a, a test for maybe a hundred genes, it might just be a little bit more expensive, but you're going to a lot more information and maybe get more bang for a buck. So let's, let's take maybe that cost question first, or, or do you start with just one gene or do you a panel or how do you yeah. choose what panel to use? Well, the dirty secret is you're going to get a panel, whether you want it or not. If you order a single gene through a lab core, they run it on a panel, but then report back the single gene. So um, from a cost standpoint, as you mentioned, there is it's very little difference. In some cases, it's cheaper to get the panel. Um, you, you, you do get the extra um, complication of having other genes you have to pay, pay attention to. Um, and that is a, a real thing to, to worry about because you, it's easy to just neglect those. Um, but you, you end up getting uh, a, a lot more information uh, also, I, I like to choose the panel that represents my patient population best. So if you're at a place that does the more of a hot spot, uh, so they, they only look at CYP2C19, STAR2, and STAR3, or, and STAR17, you know, those, those three, whatever. But you're in a place where there's a lot of African-American patients, where there's a, a lot of, of um, other groups that, that might be there that aren't European you, you need to be thinking about a, a broader look because it could be a, a star eight or a star something else that has a lot of relevance uh, for your population and would be completely missed. And so a single gene versus panel, I, I, I personally think there's too much liability with doing single gene testing. And not only is it the wrong thing clinically, but it's the wrong thing uh, legally <laughs> um, in, in, in my personal opinion. And so I, I would go with panel. 
cost standpoint is, is fairly neutral. Um, you do have the extra responsibilities there, but I try to choose a panel that is a, uh, looking at more variants just because I don't want to miss something. Now, if there's a variant that has been that has not been credentialed to be uh, clinically relevant, then you, you really, um, it doesn't matter whether it's on the panel or not. And if I get the information, I just don't use it because it's not, it's not ready to be used. Um, and so that part doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, but you, I do want a panel that is more likely going to benefit my patients. Uh, otherwise, why bother? And if it's only going to report back the variants that I know best, well, that's on me to, to know more. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that should, the patient shouldn't suffer because I want to be comfortable. Okay. Is there a um, particular panel or panels that are, are more commonly used or maybe preferred by payers? Yeah. Um, so from a payer standpoint, uh, there, there isn't, I'm not seeing them, you know, pay for, uh, only pay for one ohm or only pay for RX match or only pay for some of these others that are, that are out there. There does seem to be uh, a mixture on who will pay for, some of the uh, depression-specific panels, um, the the panels that are out there that really only talk about that particular area, they're they're a little bit more expensive, even though it's the same uh, information. Um, and and so there is some bias there in terms of payers uh, not wanting to pay for for that, although that's that's reducing also. Um, but I I my personal opinion is getting a a uh, robust panel that is representing the CPIC guidelines nicely allows you to have some guidance from CPIC if you need it um, and allows you to go and, and, um, and, and, you know, apply it in a comfortable, comfortable way. Um, most of these panels are, are being covered now. And so uh, there's, there's not really, you know, I don't have one to advertise saying, you know, Hey, the, you know, pick, pick this group versus another uh, because they're really, uh, you know, fairly similar as it goes forward. Now the the question you asked about, results, um, discrepant results, that, that's a, that's a real concern. And that it, you know, more often than not, it doesn't happen, but every once in a while it does. Uh, and I, I have a difficult time be, with that because both of them will have come from a CLIA CAP certified lab in terms of the, the U S regulatory structure, um, that likely will be, uh, performed with licensed, uh, technologist as well as a licensed medical director. Um, and yet you have these discrepancies and, you know, ordering a third test as a tiebreaker can be done, but <laughs> is that really the answer? And so I, I, uh, what I've done in that case is tried to understand which one of the results is likely to cause the most harm. And so if, it may mean starting with a reduced dose of something and then finding out I didn't need to, but I've, I've taken the approach of, all right, let's go in. And now if it's something that's acute, you need to acutely get the INR to where you need it, or you need to acutely do something else. That's a different story. And and you just have to, to uh, do your best. But um, in, in cases of discrepancy uh, where you can work your way there, um, you know, even with DPYD, uh, you know, we've started and some patients start low, even though we wanted to give a higher dose. Um, and then, you know, with no toxicity in cycle one, bumped it up for cycle two, not to hundred percent by any means, but you can calibrate a little bit, um, as you, as you go forward with the stuff. 
Yeah, spoken like a true pharmacist. Assume the worst case scenario and account for that possibility <laughs> just from there. And I think that's a reasonable approach, especially when you're talking, you know, three or six months of, uh, of KPOX or something like that. You've got some time to figure out the dose in the first month probably and still get, uh, you know, your full course of treatment in, um, which is maybe more important than, than your dose uh, intensity when you're talking the duration of treatment for something like adjuvant uh, colon cancer. I'd like to shift now to, you know, we've talked a lot about how we metabolize drugs uh, as two pharmacists, uh, but we don't just have pharmacists that listen to this. And even those pharmacists who do would be interested in how we um, use the cancer genome to, uh, to assess this. And, and um, one of the common um, problems that we've seen in practice is we'll get consulted as an inpatient for a new lung cancer diagnosis. And we sometimes are there before the biopsy, sometimes after the biopsy. And the tissue sample um, does not have enough tissue to do the PDL one, the EGFR, the ALK, the ROS one, the BRAF, the MET, the RET, the INTREC, and whatever else is coming for this. And of course, that's something you would want to do. It's, it's cost prohibitive to do that individually, as you said. So it's a, it's a panel. Um, and we've um, shifted to doing some liquid biopsies for that. So if you could walk us through that part of the testing process um, with regards to sampling the tumor for, for, the, uh, for um, actionable mutations or alterations or gene rearrangements. Yeah, and, and when, when there's a surgical resection of a, of a tumor, you, you typically have enough to do anything you want. And so that's, that's not the... Uh, you know, the area of biggest concern um, for, for that because of, of the bulk tissue uh, from that lung cancer, that colon cancer. It's a diagnosis where you have a fine needle aspirate. It's a very small, it's pencil lead, small amount of pencil lead that you've, that you've obtained from this patient. It's hard fought tissue. Um, the, ra- the interventional radiologist might look, make it look easy, um, but it is, it is a challenge to get into most places without giving, causing a pneumothorax or causing some bleeding in the liver or wherever it is you're wanting to stick that needle. Um, and, and so you have hard, a very small amount of hard-fought tissue on which to make a diagnosis um, and then on which to get uh, some advice on therapeutic uh, outcome. And as you highlighted, the, the results of a molecular uh, profile, um, including DNA, RNA, and, and in some cases, protein for PDL one et cetera, can dramatically change what happens. It can be cytotoxic, doublet chemotherapy, um, all the way through to one pill a day um, for, for a, a prolonged period of time for, for a patient that histologically looks the same. Yeah. Um, and so that it's, it, we're really at a point now where um, it's not just you know, interesting to, to know what's driving this cancer, but, um, in many tumor types, it's, it changes things dramatically. Um, and that's both on the heme side as well as the solid tumor side, um, that those, those changes are there. One, one of the things that, uh, you brought out that was really important is if you have a fine needle aspirate, um, finite amount of tissue pathology prioritizes what they want to prioritize. They own that tissue per se. Um, and so, they're going to prioritize uh, diagnosis first. Um, and once they have that, if there's enough for a genomics panel, one can then get a lot of different, uh, of, uh, a large amount of information from one panel. And so you can get a lot of that. But if you, if you can't do that, then using the tissue for, for PDL one and using blood for, uh, you know, doing, using a liquid biopsy for the variants um, is, is a viable approach. 
Um, it's not ideal, um, but it but it is an approach that one can take. This pragmatic. You cannot get good measures of PDL one from the blood. That is still immunohistochemistry, chemistry. Still is best done on on tissue. You got to see the staining. Get, yeah. Yeah. First, yeah, it's the staining of it. But you can get good molecular data uh, from the circulating uh, tumor DNA that that is present. Now, some caveats there. Um, Intract fusions, for example, some of the other fusions are are better obtained when you have RNA from uh, from the tissue. RNA from the, from the blood does not behave as well, although it's you know the the preparative methods are getting better for that. Um, but you know it's not an uncommon situation where you can't get a needle to get you know to go get a core biopsy rather than an FNA, or you can't um, resect it, or there's some reason why you can't get enough tissue to do these things. And so having liquid biopsy, not just as a way of longitudinally monitoring a patient, which we'll probably get to in our discussion, but also as a way of helping with the diagnosis, I think is a real, a real viable way. And in, ironically, um, often it could be you <laughs> to recommending that because pathology, um, most pathologists don't think about the liquid biopsy component because it's usually a send out from the lab and not something that's yeah. That's done in their in their actual technical area. Yeah. So one of the things I, I took from your answer there is, is is I as a as a simpleton often lump all these alterations together. And of course, there are differences. It sounds like in the technology for detecting a mutation versus a fusion protein versus gene rearrangement um, that uh, uh, that can uh, affect how you how you get to that. Um, you know, another uh, another question I have with regards to to your piggybacking off what you said about uh, the human genome be, being a flowing river. And if you go to a riverbank today and you measure the distance across the riverbank, it'd, it'd be one distance. If you go back a year later, it might be different based on rainfall and it changes over time. And that's certainly true for the tumor genome. And so, and this is pretty well known in, in like metastatic breast cancer, the leopard can lose its spots and, and it can be HER2 positive and HER2 negative, things yeah. like that. And the same can be true for say the allelic ratio for, you know, a PI3 kinase mutation for breast cancer, you, you know, a biopsy today versus a biopsy six months from now might be different as the tumors become, you know, heterogeneity begets more tumor heterogeneity oftentimes. So, so first tell us about, you know, how, how should we interpret that allelic ratio or allelic frequency if we get that back from a, from a tumor biopsy for, for whatever the mutation or rearrangement would be? Yeah, so I, I use, so from a tissue biopsy, um, I look at the the allele frequency, the the ratios, um, a little differently than I would a a uh, liquid biopsy. Um, so within the tissue, for, first of all, um, one of the big things that you're wanting to do with most assays is try to understand what is germline and what is somatic. So the the um, most assays nowadays are looking at tumor only. Um, there are some places that do tumor and um, dig get a blood sample or a, or a buckle scraping or saliva for, for the germline. And there um, they can use that information to kind of subtract out things that are, are common to all tissues versus things that are specific to the tumor. Um, with most of the, the assays that are used nowadays, you, you just get the tumor. And so you don't really know, um, is that variant uh, a, a true somatic driver or is this something that's, that's coming through from the, from the germline? And you know, with the, with the common things, you know, BRAF B six hundred E, you're not uh, you're not wondering that. But some of the other BRAF variants that that are amino acid changing could be actionable. You want to make sure that they're not a uh, 
a, uh, a germline variant, then you're just you know, chasing a false positive. So um, allele frequency can be helpful in that, in, in that vein. Um, uh, because if it's, if it's a high allele frequency, it's more likely to be um, something that is, is germline, that is, excuse the pun, bled through, um, as, a, as opposed to uh, a something that is really a, an actual driver. The, the other um, thing is, is you can see whether there are a minority of, of, um, of clones, so a minority of, of cells that have something bad uh, brewing there. And so, for example, with the epidermal growth factor receptor, EGFR, um, there are a lot of, of different variants and actually 18 and 19 uh, and, and 20 now um, that are, are clinically actionable. Um, but there are some variants that are known to bring resistance to uh, first generation uh, EGFR inhibitors or second generation EGFR inhibitors. In, in the case of the T790M variant, which is something that is known to cause resistance to the first line, to the first generation EGFR, it can also be a germline finding uh, and, and can be in, in uh, uh, lung cancer families. And so, you know, allele frequency allows you to really try to put these variants into context. And I know we're getting into some nuances that are beyond what most uh, um, physicians and pharmacists uh, want to use on a daily basis, but it does really allow you to, to look more deeply. It's it's like the difference between a CT scan and a CT PET. You you can see some really um, interesting two and kind of simulate three gener- uh, dim- uh, dimension information from the, from a CT scan. But then PET tells you something totally different in terms of metabolic activity. Same thing, allele frequency can allow you to look a little bit deeper in a different way um, with with these uh, these variants. And then of course, allele frequency in a semi quantitative way can be followed over time. Um, using liquid biopsy. Now, the frequency in a tissue and the frequency in a liquid, I don't ever compare those because they've been handled in a very different way. Um, and they have a lot of, the neighborhood is quite different in terms of what other cells are there and, and such. But if you have a liquid biopsy and then three months later or whatever period of time, get another one, you can at least use some, some ordinal data, you know, some, some categorical um, information about is something getting higher or lower? Now, if, if something goes from a, a allele frequency of, of, um, of, of 0.2 to a allele frequency of, of 0.25, that could well just be, you know, sampling uh, uh, variation. Testing method. Yeah. yeah. But, but when you get something that is a, a very minor part of the, the, the frequency, you know, the, the allele frequency of T790M is, is uh, you know, 0.1% or point, uh, very low. And then you measure it later and it's now, you know, 10% or something, you know, some much higher, you know, that clones on the rise, troubles brewing, you might as well prepare for it um, now, either with a change or at least be ready for uh, symptoms or CT uh, scan changes and then, and then have the next therapy ready. Yeah. Um, and that's what I like about the leo frequency in the liquid biopsy context is you, you not only know that recurrence is happening or progressive disease rather, uh, excuse me, is happening, um, but you know some hints of what to do next. Um, and it could be that it'll tell you what driver to hit, or it could be that it'll tell you there's no drivers and you need to use chemotherapy. I mean, you know, there, there still are old chemotherapies that work, you know, so, um, you know, there's some good direction there of ruling in and ruling out options um, as, as you go over time. Yeah, and certainly... 
you know, we know that, that those tissues evolve over time. I know there's a, there's a case report in the New England Journal of Medicine of, you know, a, an outmutated uh, non-small cell lung cancer that uh, the patient went from like crizotinib to seritinib to electinib and then back to crizotinib and had a response just based on, you know, the, 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 uh, the way, the way the tumor evolved last specific question for you here. And then kind of a general question. So let's say you you're at the di- the point of diagnosis, not the point of diagnosis, but you've gone through all your chemo options. You're on that. We don't have anything that we know. And you, you send, you know, you do a, um, you do a genomic, test a uh, panel on the tumor and you get, um, you know, an allelic frequency of 6% for a BRAF mutation. And then one of, of 12% for something else, you know, how do you, de- let's, let's say it's uh, intrac. I don't know. How would you determine, you know, is it, you know, cause if you think about it as a pharmacist, it's, if you look at the MIC numbers that doesn't, you don't just go with the antibody that's got the lowest MIC. So yeah, is that true right. for this? You don't just go yes. with the highest legal ratio. How do you determine what to do there? Yeah, so it's that's a great analogy with MIC, and I and uh, I I use a similar approach. It's it's part of the equation um, in terms of, of going forward. Um, part of the equation is uh, patient's symptomatology. Um, do you need some acute side of reduction, or do you need something that can 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 uh, control things, you know, stabilize it for for a while? You know, if you have a, a choice between a BRAF uh, inhibitor and a PARP inhibitor um, in, in something that is being driven potentially by both, um, I'm going to use the BRAF inhibitor or uh, BRAF-MEC combo um, over a PARP inhibitor because in my personal opinion, PARP inhibitors are a great source of stable disease, but not, uh, not always, especially outside of breast and ovarian, um, it's something that we'll use to buy time. But you're not going to see a dramatic shrinkage that you might get with a, with a BRAF uh, mech combo um, in that, in that case. Um, and so, you know, same with, you know, PIK3CA uh, outside of, of breast, um, you know, PIK3CA inhibitors can be used. There's a little bit of data in GI and more data coming, but I don't expect anything other than buying a little time um, uh, at, at best, um, at, with, with, um, some of those therapies and, you know, over, over, you get, you know, as you gain experience, you, you start learning which, which drugs you kind of are using as a, as a bridge to hopefully somewhere, um, as opposed to, um, really trying to buy some serious time, you know, cur- you know, have a uh, radiologic changes that will really, uh, uh, you know, allow things going, going forward. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is you, um, after you get past uh, second line or in some cases, third line therapy, you're not off label because there is no label. <laughs> there, there are no therapies uh, um, to, to, uh, to choose from on, on, on the label. Um, there are no NCCN guidelines in some of those cases. You're just picking something because the patient is fit and they want to keep um, uh, trying to control their disease. Um, and so in, in that case, you know, the scenario you described is, is a very common one. You, you try to order things. The other piece there is you, there's a level of benefit that is not quantitatable uh, when an oncologist can sit down with a patient and say, we have two options ready for you. Here's why I think we should pick drug B first. But if it doesn't do the job and explain what the job is, controlling the disease for a while. Or it becomes too toxic drug- for you. Yeah, the, the drug A is ready. Um, and um, 
it's it's um, there's a level of comfort that that comes, and and I think it's not false hope. I think it's it's comfort, not hope. Um, in terms of you know they're not you don't want to overpitch it. You're curing someone, but you know the idea that there is a plan that is not just we'll do something and then see what happens, but we're going to do something. If that doesn't work, here's the next approach that really can benefit. And this, you know, I I think you know when molecular tumor boards are are evaluating these panels, being able to go in and and really uh, describe what the next couple of options should be is is as valuable as helping select the current option uh, because it gives that patient a plan um, from a business standpoint it helps people stay with a practice because why would I leave the practice when there's two more options waiting for me you know and so it's it ends up being a, a, a real positive way forward yeah well, well thank you Howard uh, I've got one final question for you kind of uh, general you know you know, for, for people listening to this, if, if, if you've, if you've been hanging on every word kind of as I have with, with Howard's experience and you want to get deeper into this sort of stuff, you know, what are some resources Uh, on the other side? If, if you're like a Lelic ratio, what does that mean? And you want some more general resources, you know, maybe for students or maybe PJ one residents, what are, what are resources that that you've uh, used or that you find helpful for folks? Yeah, so there are a couple different directions one could go. If you want to go more formally, um, you know, ACCP and HOPA, or HOPA and ACCP, depending on your orientation, um, have a, a cancer genomics course. Um, it is not free, but um, is, uh, has some really active practitioners. Um, Chris Walco, Jill Klesser, uh, Todd Nepper are the three main uh, folks organizing that one. These I got are, the... Are, I got the email this week. It's it's like four hundred dollars if you're a HOPA or ACCP member. So it's not right, and it's like six hundred, seven hundred if you're not a member. So it's not yeah. it's not cheap, but it's not it's not like five grand. Well, and you're and you're getting you're doing this with some real pros. Um, you know, there are some of the courses out there that are folks that have pulled together a very nice curriculum, but they don't really do this for a living. You know, they they teach for a living, not, not you know, and that's why they're doing courses. Uh, in this case, you're getting three three folks that really carry a lot of water, and and so you're going to get some nuances that you wouldn't get from otherwise. Um, so that's you know think that's that's one route, and there's some other other courses like that that are out there. In in terms of literature, um, it's it's challenging because that that perfect um, you know precision medicine demystified paper is not out there, um, but there are a, a a number of papers that that have uh, done a really nice review, and. Uh, there's there's been uh, some that have come out in ASCO. Um, there's been a few recent reviews on liquid biopsy that uh, I felt like really kind of laid out the the pragmatic piece. Um, what I've done is encourage people to to look for uh, articles that are in practical journals. So something that's in one of the best pathology journals or or is is going to be really good, but not necessarily what you need. But if you go to the oncologists or some of the, these journals that yeah. are not JCO, <laughs> you're, you're going to get some practicalities in there that really lay things out and some nice glossaries that will tell you what these various things mean. Um, there's also a series of YouTube videos out there. Uh, I've done a couple others have, that will allow you to, to really kind of dig into the individual test reports. Um, I, I, I did, did a series on... We did one for foundation medicine, one for Keras, one for uh, Gardent, um, where we just kind of said, well, here's how you interpret one of these reports. Um, and, and so that, that sort of thing can help as well. And then lastly, the, the, the National Institute of Health 
um, the National Human Genome Research Institute um, has a uh, genomics for for um, for almost for lay people um, uh, a glossary page and some nice cartoons that that help um, as well for there. So that's a, a long answer to a short question, but. Um, the perfect papers are not out there, but there is something that will help you. Sure, sure. Well, well thank you, uh, Howard. Um, I think maybe Precision Medicine Demystified is a good podcast title. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, well, well, thank you so much. I know you've got a, a heart out here in a few minutes, so I really appreciate your time. Um, and um, thanks for coming on the pod. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, this has been really fun. And it's it's the time, you know, whether you're a pharmacist or a physician or a nurse practitioner or whatever you're doing, this is the time to really jump into this field. There's such a need. Um, you know, experienced oncologists still need help. There is no current radiologist for the genome in terms of therapeutic interpretation. And so um, there's a, a real opportunity for people to be that in their practice setting. All right. Thank you. Uh, and once again, that's Dr. Howard McLeod. Thanks for joining us.